to 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been studying on Sunday evenings in this first epistle of Peter for several months, and we've come now to the end of chapter 3. I want us to look at these last six verses, verses 17 through 22. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. I've entitled my message this evening, Five Lies Exposed. Five Lies Exposed. And I've had some second thoughts about that title. Maybe it should be Five Eras Exposed. But what I would like for us to do tonight is to look at five lies or errors which have been taught and show how that these verses of Scripture explode those errors, do away with those errors or those lies. First, it has been taught and is taught even today that it is never God's will for his people, that is for Christians, to suffer. That's something that is taught by the prosperity gospel preachers. They teach that it's never God's will for any of his children to suffer. That if you just believe, if you just have faith, then you will be delivered. You will never know suffering. But notice verse 17 declares that this is not so. This is not true. Peter says, for it is better if... The will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. It is a given with Peter that Christians may suffer. And what he is saying here is that if Christians do suffer, well, it's better that we suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. The Apostle Paul said much the same thing in his letter to the church at Philippi when he said, For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on him. Faith is a gift. And Paul says, says in this verse, It's not only given unto you to believe on Christ, it is, but also to suffer for his sake. 
Now, that's what the Word of God declares. The point that Peter is making is simply this. If the will of God be so, for you to suffer, you're one of his children, one who he loves with an everlasting love, who has always loved you and will always love you, if it is his will for you to suffer, then it's better to suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. <laughs> that just makes sense, doesn't it? It's better for you to suffer for your faith in Christ, that is, that you trust in him, you confess him, you follow him and his teaching, you love your enemies, as the scriptures declare us to do, you do good to them that hate you, and you suffer for your faith. You suffer for well-doing. It's better, if the will of God be so, for you to suffer, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And look in the next chapter, chapter 4 of Peter, and verses 15 and 16. He said, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So this verse Verse 17 in our text tonight, it exposes the lie that is taught that it is never God's will for his children to suffer. When you read and when you look around you and, and think of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer, some we know have suffered for years. And if it's the will of God that you suffer, it's better, Peter says, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. But never believe, never take in that lie that it will never be God's will for his children to suffer. Stephen, the first martyr, first Christian martyr, he suffered for well-doing, didn't he? He was martyred for telling the truth. Now, the second lie, the second error that is taught, that Christ, now listen, that his one sacrifice for sins is not enough. That his one sacrifice for sins is not enough. Look at verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. You might ask, has his one sacrifice for sins, you say some people say it's not enough? Yes. Many churches, many preachers, so-called, they tell you that his sacrifice, his suffering is not enough. That you've got to add something to his sacrifice. Either your faith, your obedience, your works, 
you've got to add to his sacrifice, that his one sacrifice for sins is not enough. Not enough for what? Not enough, Peter says, to bring us to God. It is enough. <laughs> Let's look at that verse a little more carefully. First, Christ hath once suffered for sins. He did not suffer for his own sins because we know that he had no sins of his own. But it was rather he suffered for the sins of his people. When the sins of his people were charged to his account as their surety, as he agreed to be our surety in that covenant of grace, then he suffered once for our sins. The word once, I believe, points especially to his death. The truth is the Lord Jesus Christ suffered all the time he was in this world as a man, from the cradle to the grave. His life was a life of suffering. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. But we especially, when we see this once, we especially think about his sacrifice on the cross. As we read in Hebrews 10 <coughs> and verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Christ hath once suffered for sin. He's never going to suffer again for sin. He never needs to suffer again for sin. The second thing we see here, the just for the unjust. We know who the just is, don't we? For Christ hath once suffered for sins. The just, the just, when you look at the so-called trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was betrayed by Judas, when he was brought before Annas and Caiaphas, and brought before Pilate, brought before Herod, each and every one of those so-called judges before which he stood had to confess that he was the just one. Remember Judas, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Now Judas was a man who was with the Lord, his intimate friend, for a period of, a, of approximately three years. He walked with the Lord. He ate with the Lord. He, he had every opportunity to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, to examine his life. And after he had betrayed him, that's what he confessed. I have betrayed innocent blood. In other words, the just one, innocent. And then, of course, Pilate, he declared that, didn't he? He said, I find no fault in this man. And the high priest adjured him, adjured Christ, the Lord Jesus. If thou be the Christ. Well, once he adjured Christ, he had to speak the truth. And he did speak the truth, confessing that 
they would see him on the right hand of God the Father. The just for the unjust. And we know who the unjust are, don't we? That's you. That's me. That's every one of his children, every one of his blood-bought children, every one who will enjoy heaven forever with God. The unjust. He only suffered for the unjust. He only saves sinners. You know, this is a very essential part of the gospel, isn't it? And I've said this before, and I know you know this, and I hope you remember it always. But when you hear the gospel, you will always hear these two things. Substitution. That's what we have here. The just suffered for the unjust. And satisfaction. He satisfied God. He confessed, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Christ loved the church, the Apostle Paul wrote. He loved the church, the church which is his body, his mystical body. If you are a believer tonight, you are a member of his body. He is the head. And Christ loved the church. He loved his body and gave himself for it. So Christ once suffered for sins, once. The lie is that that wasn't enough. And many so-called churches, every time, they, I don't want to say what they call the Lord's Supper because it's not the Lord's Supper, the Mass. The Mass. Every time a Mass is said, they are saying that his one sacrifice was not enough. Every time. That's what they are confessing. No. No. We must offer another sacrifice, a bloodless sacrifice here in this hocus-pocus ceremony that we're going to have here. No. You know tonight that when we observe the Lord's table, the bread is still bread and the wine is still wine. When the Lord Jesus Christ, I was reading about the, his first miracle yesterday, when he turned water into wine, there was no question that water tasted like wine. Right? Why did it taste like wine? Because it was wine. And why does bread taste like bread and wine like wine in the mass? Because it is still bread and wine. It's not somehow transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of Christ. That's a lie. Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. And notice number three, that he might bring us to God. Who are the us here? Who are the us? And he might bring us to God. The us are those for whom he died. He didn't die to make salvation possible. That's what so many people are being told today. Well, he died to make salvation possible. No, he died to save his people. He died 
the just for the unjust to do this, to bring us to God, whoever the us are. He died to bring us to God. Look in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, now notice, to usward. Who's he long-suffering to? To the same us in our text tonight. Christ hath once suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And God, the Apostle Peter tells us, is long-suffering to usward, not willing, not willing, he's not willing that one of his chosen elect members of his body Not one that he gave unto his son. He's not willing that one of his sheep should perish. But that all should come to repentance. We know the day is going to come when that last one. For whom Christ died. That make up the us here. Is going to come to repentance. And faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens. That's when we will all get to heaven. Right? When we shall all get to heaven. When he comes again for his people. Now notice the fourth thing in the text (coughs) that Peter tells us. Christ once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Number four, he was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, we know, is the God-man. He is both God and man in one person. What is death? What is death according to the word of God? It's separation. That's what death is. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. When the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the cross, dismissed his spirit, committed his spirit unto the Father. His spirit was separate. His soul was separated from his body, his flesh. You know that word flesh, it means more than just flesh like we have on the, as it's used in the New Testament. It means more than just like flesh on our arms and on our bodies. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It means that he was made Truly man, truly man with a reasonable soul and a body as well. When he dismissed his spirit, then there was that separation. Now, I read years ago this illustration of a man takes his sword and pulls it out of his scabbard. When he takes it out of the scabbard, The soul was separated from the body. But he was still God as God in spirit and God in flesh as 
his body. In other words, a union between the eternal Son of God and his flesh, his body. When the soul and spirit were separated, he was not separated from his godhood. That body that was laid in the tomb for three days was the body, if you please, of God. And his spirit, which returned unto the Father, was God, because he is God. He was put to death in the flesh, but quickened, the scripture here says, by the spirit. In other words, by his spirit by his eternal spirit as God, the Holy Spirit. He was quickened by the spirit. And so he came out of that grave, didn't he? He walked out of that grave and the soul and body were reunited once again forever. That's the way he is right now in heaven at the Father's right hand. There's a man in glory. That's what the scripture said. There's a man in glory. And if there's one man there, and there is, then there can be many more men there. You can be there. I can be there. There's a man in glory. So that's the second lie that is taught, that that, that one sacrifice for sins was not enough, that we've got to do something more, we've got to add to it to make it effectual. The third error or lie, it's been taught, look here in our text, it's been taught that the prison, in verse 19, that this prison by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Some have taught that there was a compartment somehow in the bowels of the earth. (laughs) There was a compartment, I believe the the Roman church calls it the limbus pactum. There's a compartment there. And the Old Testament saints, when they died, they didn't go to heaven. Their souls went into this place, and they were there until the Lord Jesus Christ rose himself from the dead, and they with him ascended into heaven. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when he spoke of believers who died before his death, he said they were carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom standing for a place of peace and rest. Now this text speaks about preaching unto spirits in prison. And not a word said about anybody being released from prison. No, it speaks about spirits being preached to in prison. Well, what does this verse teach us? It tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, in the days of Noah, through Noah, through Noah's preaching, he was a preacher of righteousness, and through his building of the ark, that by the spirit of the Lord, The Lord was preaching to that generation. Now, when Peter wrote this, that generation was in prison. They were not in prison when he preached to them. 
You know, there's those who teach that, well, there's a second, second chance or second opportunity that, that people are going to be given after you die, that there's going to be another opportunity to hear the gospel and, and believe. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Not at all. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the last chapter, we read this. And this is the way it is when a man dies, when a woman dies. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. In other words, if he dies lost, let him be lost. Not just for a few days, but forever. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, never been washed from his sins, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. Here's a man, he's been made righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's been justified and he dies. He was righteous when he was alive. He's still righteous, still righteous. Let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. It was by our Lord's Spirit in Noah, who was, as I said, a preacher of righteousness, that that generation who were now in hell when Peter wrote this, they were in prison, but the gospel, but the gospel had been preached unto them by his spirit in Noah. And not just his, his words, but also every time he drove a nail, if he drove nails into that ark, he was testifying against an ungodly, wicked generation. That judgment's coming. And it did come, didn't it? It did come. And there was not anyone other than the eight souls in that ark who were saved. And you know that's a lovely picture of Christ, isn't it? The ark, a picture of Christ, a type of Christ. It's only those who are in Christ who are saved. A fourth lie has been taught that baptism is more than a figure. Notice in verse 21, the apostle says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It has been taught, and it's still taught today, that baptism is more than a figure, more than a type. Some, they teach that what we call baptismal regeneration. And I would say most of the churches that sprinkle infants, most of them, this is what they believe, that when the parents take that baby up to the fount, and the priest puts his hand in that, that water and puts a little water on his head and makes the sign of the cross, that that infant has now become a member of the kingdom of God, has been regenerated, has been brought into the family of God by the baptism. And then we know that there are those who teach that a person cannot be saved unless he is baptized. There's a whole group of people believe that. And they love to quote Mark 16, 16. I say they love to quote part of it. <laughs> he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But that's where they usually stop. 
He that believeth not shall be damned. Who will be damned? Those who do not believe. The thief, the thief who was crucified alongside the Lord Jesus Christ, he died that day and entered into heaven, never having passed through the waters of baptism. Why? Because Christ is the Savior. Christ is the Savior. What is baptism then? Well, Peter says it's an answer of good conscience toward God. <clears throat> In other words, when a person is saved and he knows that the Word of God teaches that a person who comes to know Christ should confess Christ in baptism. And I'm talking from experience here. I know this. Then you just feel you've got to do that. You need to do that. That's what the Word of God declares. When you're saved, you need to be baptized. And your conscience feels guilty until <laughs> you surrender and ask the preacher to baptize you. Mm -hmm. And then when you come up out of that water, which is also a picture of the gospel, I understand that, but it's also an answer of a good conscience. Your conscience is at peace. You've obeyed God. You've done what he said you should do. Now the last, and I'm sorry I've taken so long, the last lie or error that has been taught it has been taught that Christ will one day, one day, be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. One day, one day, one day, one day, he's going to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's not what Peter said. Look at what Peter said in that last verse who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. It's not he's going to one day be king of kings. He is. He is king of kings. He is exalted to the Father's right hand and all authority, he said, both in heaven and in earth is given unto him. Well, I trust the Lord would bless these words to all of us here tonight. The main thing that we concentrate upon is by one sacrifice, his one sacrifice, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And that's what's pictured here tonight, isn't it? His one sacrifice. The bread and wine are separated because the life of the flesh, the scripture says the life of the flesh is in the blood. The bread represents his flesh, his body, which was broken for us, but the cup is separate from it. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and when the blood is separated from the flesh, there's death. And that's what we remember tonight, is death. If the